All right, uh, I have a confession to make. Is that okay with you if I make a confession? Are you ready? I am a chronic overpacker. <laughs> I, I, I just am. If the trip is two days, I take three or four changes of clothes because you never know what might happen, what might get spilled or, you know, you never know what might happen. So I'm an over-preparer. I'm a chronic over-packer. Uh, I take always, always take way too many pairs of shoes when I travel because uh, different activities when you travel, right, require different footwear. Uh, if you're going to class or going to uh, formal gatherings, you need a certain set of shoes, right? If you're going hiking, you need another set of shoes. Uh, if you stay at Brandon's parents in Portland and muck their horse stalls on the horse farm, you need another set of shoes for all of that. Socks, man, I'm just, I just stand back and throw socks into my suitcase. I don't even count. I'm just like, yep, you can't have too many pairs of socks, right? And what, what jackets, good night, jackets, right? Uh, the what if it rains jacket, the what if it's too warm for the fleece and too cold for the no jacket jacket, and what if it's uh, zero degrees out and then you have to have like a real deal coat. I am just an overpacker, even all the way down to the razors that I take. I'm a guy who uses a brand new disposable razor every day. I use it once and then I throw it away. Uh, last night, some guy asked if he could have those after I used them because he wanted to use them. I said, well, I, I kind of was like, sure, you, you can. He said, no, I'm just kidding. I was like, well, I, I didn't. No, he didn't really want them. Uh, uh, if I'm going for three days, I'm going to take at least five razors uh, because you never know where you might get stranded and they might not have disposable razors there for some weird reason. It's, it's a problem. And I've confessed it all to you. Uh, when Dan and I went to Ethiopia this summer to pick up Josh, Silas, and Malia and bring them home, uh, my chronic o- something about international travel causes my chronic overpacking condition to flare up especially high. Uh, Dan and I lugged all the way to Africa, across Italy, and so on, five enormous suitcases between her and me, plus very large, very full carry-ons. Now, uh, to our credit, we had one suitcase each for the three kids. All of their stuff was in there. But still, five huge, I mean like the world's largest suitcases, uh, plus carry-ons for a 10-day trip, like, I've got a problem. I, I, just, I just do. I probably need treatment or something for my condition. And some of you are sitting in your chairs right now, and you're going like, come on, Hopkins, get with it. What is your problem? Don't you know you can't enjoy a trip when you're lugging around so much stuff? Why don't you chill, leave some stuff at home, and stop overpacking? That's what you're thinking. But it's true that this condition of lugging around way too much baggage is almost universal, isn't it? Any other overpackers in the room? Any other overpackers in the room? Yeah, look at you all up there. See, it's almost universal, right? And then let me flip it and twist it up a little differently. Haven't you at some point in your life picked up way more than your share of baggage? Haven't you at some point in your life picked up way more than your share of baggage? Maybe you even did it today. Maybe somewhere between your feet hitting the floor this morning when you got out of bed and your last step out the front door to come here, you scooped up some baggage of your very own. It was almost as if you had stopped by the baggage carousel and loaded yourself right up. Some of you are scoffing right now, saying like, what are you talking about? I don't have a baggage carousel in my house. What's your deal? And see, for a whole bunch of us, we don't even remember doing it because we almost do it instinctively without thinking. 
You didn't see a baggage carousel this morning? Okay. That's okay, because the one I'm talking about isn't the one like they have out at the airport. Instead, it's the baggage carousel in our heads, isn't it? And just in case you're wondering, the bags that most of us grab most of the time aren't made out of vinyl or cordura or even leather because the ones I'm talking about are made of burdens. You know the ones. Baggage, luggage, stuff. The suitcase full of guilt. The sack of discontent. The duffel bag of weariness on one shoulder. The garment bag of grief on the other, and then you toss a backpack full of doubt, an overnight bag full of loneliness, a whole footlocker full of fear in, and pretty soon after you've picked up all of that, you're toting way more luggage than a skycap does. And then we wonder, why at the end of a day am I so incredibly tired? Why is my soul so weary? That's because hauling that level of luggage is absolutely exhausting. And do you know that the exact same thing you were saying to me when I was making my very heartfelt confession to you about being a chronic overpacker, the same thing that you said to me, come on, leave some stuff at home, put it down. You can't enjoy a trip when you're lugging so much stuff. Chill a little, just stop overpacking, right? The thing you said to me, the thing you thought about me, is the exact same thing that God himself is saying to you and me and All of us. Put it down. Just put it down. You're lugging stuff around that you don't need to carry. You're lugging stuff around, frankly, that you weren't even made to carry. Look at Matthew 11, 28. Here's the words of Jesus Christ himself. Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens. All of you who are chronic overpackers, And we're not talking about real suitcases here. Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. That's soul rest that Jesus is talking about. And that verse, in case you didn't notice, is a promise. If we'll only let him, God promises to relieve us of our baggage. And just to prove that, God, let's just catch a glimpse of some of Jesus' family's baggage from their past. Now remember, this is Jesus Christ. This is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the Messiah, the sent one of God, actually has baggage in his family's past. If you've got a Bible, I'd invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 1. If you don't have a text, you can follow along on the screens. Matthew chapter 1. And we're going to look in Matthew chapter 1 at the family tree of Jesus Christ. This is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, His family tree, His lineage. This is the Son of God. Now, a little bit of background uh, into Jesus' family tree. Matthew's account of Christ's lineage and family tree, it goes back over the course. It spans 28 generations, approximately, representing somewhere between 16 and 1,800 years. That's astounding. 16 to 1,800 years of family history laid out for us in Matthew chapter 1. That's especially important because to Jewish people during biblical times, genealogies, family trees, family histories were very significant. It was always of critical importance to know where you came from, whose ancestry you followed in the footsteps of, what tribe or what family of Israel that you had descended from. And we can't identify with that, can we? We don't have a concept 
at that level. As most of our family trees demonstrate, we don't have this strong concept of family history in our modernized Western world. Lineage and family trees are not that important to us. One reason for that, some people suspect, is because we carry in us this very strong, very independent spirit in which we want to be our own people. We don't want people who lived hundreds of years ago to define our course for us. We want to be our own person, our own people. We want to make our own way. That means when most of us crack Matthew chapter 1, we'll skip right over the very beginning of Matthew chapter 1. Right over Jesus' genealogy. We'll skip right over Jesus' family tree because it's a boring family genealogy. Who cares? It feels very pointless to us. It goes something like this. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. And pretty soon we're nodding off, right? It's sleep-inducing, frankly. It's very boring. But when we press in just a couple of layers deeper into Matthew's presentation of Jesus' family tree, we very quickly discover that it's anything but boring. Far from boring. We actually discover when we peel back a couple of layers that Jesus' family has some very serious baggage from their past. There's more than just a few skeletons in Jesus' closet when it comes to his lineage and his family history. Truth be told, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, his family history, his family tree is far from being perfect, a long way from being perfect. And instead of skipping over those, like we're often prone to do, Matthew actually goes out of his way to point them out and draw us into them. Why? Why would Matthew do that? Why would Matthew want to point out all of the skeletons in Jesus' family history closet? It's because he's setting for us the stage for Jesus' physical arrival into our world. The incarnate Christ coming into our world, live and in the flesh, God in a bod, as I like to say. And those skeletons in Jesus' closet point us to just some of the stories that go on and have gone on behind the scenes, behind the birth of Jesus. And they do a fantastic job of revealing and painting for us who God is at his very core, at his very nature, and why in the world he would send his one and only son into the world to live a rather short life and then die. Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 1. I'll read through uh, this chunk, and I'm cutting out a fair bit of it, so just bear with me as I sort of skip along. It takes a long time to read it all, and so uh, we'll sort of gloss over some of it. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah a descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amadinadab. Amadinadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. That's my favorite name in the whole listing. What if that was your name? Hey, Salmon, come here. Uh, oh, if your name is Salmon, I'm very sorry. Please forgive me. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. You know that story. 
Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. Abijah was the father of Asa. Eliud was the father of Eliezer. Eliezer was the father of Mathan. Mathan was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. All those listed above include 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the Babylonian exile, and 14 from the Babylonian exile to the Messiah. These sort of 14 generation chunks there. And we start in and we read this. A record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Now, Matthew does that very intentionally because he needs, he must communicate to us that Jesus is indeed a descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he is indeed a recipient of and is indeed a party to God's covenant promise to Israel. He's the real deal. He's not a foreigner. He's the real deal, a descendant of Abraham. If you remember back in Old Testament history, God's promise to Abraham back when his name was Abram, was that his, in, in, uh, his descendants would inherit the promised land, that, that they would be a blessing to the whole world, and that his descendants, Abraham's descendants, who at the time, he didn't have any kids, he was way up in age, far past childbearing years, and God promised him, though, that his descendants would be numerous. Matthew also wants to let us know that Jesus is a descendant of King David, That is actually what qualifies him to be the Messiah, to be the Savior of the world, because all of the Old Testament foretellings declared that the Messiah would be a descendant of David and that he would rule forever. This is a different kind of king in the Messiah, not like King David who would live for a while and then die. This is a king who will rule and reign forever. Therefore, Matthew sets the stage for the arrival of Jesus Christ the incarnate Savior of the world. Let's start in at the top of Matthew 1 again. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. And there it is, not at all very far into Jesus' family tree, we run into the very first skeleton in Jesus' family's closet. Remember, Jesus has skeletons in his family closet. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father, you're going like, what is it? Judah was the father of Jacob, Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. There it is, right there. You should be... Stopping, like, right there, Tamar. And when we stop, you kind of go like, oh, so what? That's a woman in Jesus' family tree. And when you look at any other Jewish genealogy all throughout the Old Testament, one of the striking truths is that there is exceedingly seldom mentioned a woman in a family history. But here it is, right at the very start of the New Testament of the Bible, Here we have Tamar in the lineage of Jesus Christ. And Matthew puts her name in there for a reason. He's attempting to call our attention to something. Now, uh, do you know the story of Tamar? If you've got a Bible, turn over to Genesis 38, and we'll look at it together. Some of us know it. Some of us don't. And I just want to tell you that if you're turning over there in your Bible right now, I'm taking out some uh, key pieces of this story to keep it PG-rated, okay? And some of you know what I'm talking about. If you want the PG-13, maybe even R-rated version, you can read it on your own. Some of you are like, where's my Bible? Get me, 
<laughs> R-rated? Indeed. Genesis 38, chapter, uh, chapter 38, verse 1. About this time, Judah left home and moved to Adullam, where he stayed with a man named Hira. There he saw a Canaanite woman, the daughter of Shua, and he married her. When he slept with her, she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. How do you get pregnant by just sleeping with someone? I, I don't, that doesn't, I don't, uh. Anyway, he slept with her, she became pregnant, and gave birth to a son, and he named the boy Ur, because it was an easy name. <laughs> then she became pregnant again and gave birth to another son, and she named him Onan. And when she gave birth to a third son, she named him Shelah. At the time of Shelah's birth, they were living in Kazib. In the course of time, Judah arranged for his firstborn son, Ur, to marry a young woman named Tamar. Here she is. But Ur was a wicked man in the Lord's sight, so the Lord took his life. Yikes. Then Judah said to Ur's brother Onan, Go and marry Tamar, as our law requires of the brother of a man who has died. You must produce an heir for your brother. But Onan was not willing to have a child who would not be his own heir. Now, there's three dots, dot, dot, dot. That's the part I cut out that you could look at on your own time. But the Lord considered it evil for Onan to deny a child to his dead brother. So the Lord took Onan's life too. Double yikes. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, go back to your parents' home, remain a widow until my son Shelah is old enough to marry you. And then parenthetically, but Judah didn't really intend to do this because he was afraid Shelah would also die like his two brothers. So he intentionally misleads Tamar, lies to her. He has no intention whatsoever of letting his last son marry her. So Tamar went back to live in her father's home. Some years later, Judah's wife died. After the time of mourning was over, Judah and his friend Hira, the Adolamite, went up to Timnah to supervise the shearing of his sheep. Someone told Tamar, look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. Now, Tamar was aware that Shelah had grown up, but no arrangements had been made for her to come and marry him. So she changed out of her widow's clothing. So she realized that she's been misled, deceived, lied to. So she changed out of her widow's clothing, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself. And then she sat beside the road at the entrance to the village of Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. Judah noticed her and thought she was a prostitute since she had covered her face. So he stopped and propositioned her. Let me have sex with you, he said, not realizing that she was his own daughter-in-law. Now this is in the family history, in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the Savior of the world. She's pretending to be a prostitute. Her father-in-law propositions her. Let me have sex with you, he said, not realizing she was his own daughter-in-law. Then he had intercourse with her, and she became pregnant. At least the Bible's honest here. It doesn't just use the slept with thing. The real deal here, we know how this happened. She became pregnant. Afterwards, she went back home, took off her veil, put on her widow's clothing as usual. Back to normal life. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has acted like a prostitute. And now because of this, she's pregnant. Whoops. When the time came for Tamar to give birth, it was discovered she was carrying twins, Perez and Zerah. I think about that. How many of us think we have real skeletons in our closet or in our family's closet? Stuff that we carry, baggage that we lug around. We don't have anything when you compare it to this. I mean, you couldn't make this stuff up, could you? This is hardly flattering lineage for Jesus Christ. 
Nothing about any of this is anything that any of us would want hanging on our family tree. Most of us, we, we want to gloss over the skeletons from our past, but Matthew, he doesn't do it. He goes way out of his way to draw our attention to this story, inserting Tamar's name parenthetically. And let's look at one more uh, less than flattering piece of Jesus' family history, Matthew chapter 1. Let's keep going. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. We talked about her. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amadinadab, Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father, here we go, Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Rahab, there we go again, another woman mentioned parenthetically in the lineage of Jesus Christ. What in the world is Rahab doing in the family tree, in the family lineage of Jesus Christ? Why? How? Who's Rahab? Joshua chapter 2, if you've got a Bible. Here's what the Bible says. Then Joshua secretly sent out two spies from the Israelite camp at Acacia Grove. He instructed them, scout out the land on the other side of the Jordan River, especially around Jericho. So the two men set out, and they came to the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there that night. Now, isn't that fascinating? Joshua sends out two spies from the nation of Israel. Go and check out Jericho and the surrounding uh, area. Scout it out because we're about to seize the land. This is part of the promised land that God has, uh, is going to deliver to us. And so the two spies go. And why do they end up at a prostitute's house? Is that weird to anyone but me? Like the first place they come, is, is it like cheap accommodations at the prostitute's house? What's the deal? But someone told the king of Jericho, some Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent orders to Rahab, bring out the men who have come into your house, for they have come here to spy out the whole land. Rahab had hidden the two men, but she replied, yes, the men were here earlier, but I don't know where they were from. They left town at dusk as the gates were about to close. I don't know where they went. If you hurry, you can probably catch up with them. Actually, she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them beneath bundles of flax she had laid out. Before the spies went to sleep that night, Rahab went up on the roof to talk to them. I know the Lord has given you this land, she told them. We are all afraid of you. Watch this. For the Lord your God is the supreme God of the heavens above and the earth below. That's faith, isn't it? Faith in the God of Israel. This Canaanite prostitute has faith in the God of Israel. And she says, now swear to me by the Lord that you will be kind to me and my family since I have helped you, since I have lied for you, actually. Give me some guarantee that when Jericho is conquered, you'll let me live along with my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all their families. Then, since Rahab's house was built into the town wall, she let them down by a rope through the window, and she sent them on their way, leaving the scarlet rope hanging from the window. The spies went up into the hill country and stayed there three days. Then the two spies came down from the hill country, crossed the Jordan River, and reported to Joshua all that had happened to them. The Lord has given us the whole land, they said. For all the people in the land are terrified of us. So here again is another skeleton in the closet of Jesus' family history. Rahab is a lying Canaanite prostitute. She lives in the town of Jericho, and she's got at least three marks against her. Her profession, her nationality. Canaanites were dirty, untouchable people, according to the Jews. And then she's got this chronic inability to tell the truth, right? She just, she lies. Certainly she lied to protect the spies, which some would say is a noble thing, absolutely, but she lies nonetheless. At least three strikes against her. Now, if you know the rest of the story, you know that the people of Israel marched to Jericho. 
And for seven days, they encircled and marched around the walls of Jericho. And then on the last day, the seventh day, at the blowing of the ram's horn, the walls of the city of Jericho miraculously came tumbling down. And only one family survived, and it was Rahab's family. God chose, God elected to protect and save her because she actually believed in the power of the God of the Israelites. And she actually demonstrated her meager faith by protecting those Israelite spies, even if it took a lie to do it. Sure, she was a Canaanite. Sure, she was a prostitute. Sure, she was a liar. Yet God still saved her and actually includes her in the family history in the lineage, in the arrival, in the birth process of his one and only son, the savior of the world, the one who has come to be born, to live and to die, to pay the penalty for us and for our sin. And God not only saved her life and the life of her whole family, but later on, she married an Israelite. She bore him children. And apparently, she lived out the rest of her life in such a way that God was pleased, God was honored, God was lifted high. And we know that because Rahab, a lying Canaanite prostitute, is listed in the New Testament book of Hebrews, chapter 11, as literally one of the heroes of all of Christian faith. Up there with Noah, Moses, David, Samuel, and keep going. All the biggies. Here's Rahab. Look at Hebrews 11.31. It was by faith that Rahab the prostitute, notice that the author of the Hebrews includes her occupation, that Rahab the prostitute was not destroyed with the people in her city who refused to obey God, for she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Now you talk about people who have baggage. You talk about people who have stuff. Yet somehow, some way, God enabled and empowered these two women who were in the lineage of Jesus Christ, the family history of Jesus Christ. Somehow, some way, they were able to put their baggage down, leave it behind, move away from their past, move away from their baggage, one step and one day at a time. And lots of us say, I, I can't do it. I, I can't do it. I passed, it's way too heavy to put down. I, I just have to bear this. I just have to carry this. Yet somehow, some way, these two gals manage to do it. And see, there isn't a single one of us who at some point hasn't said, I've got too much baggage for God to do anything with my life. I've got too much baggage for God to be able to make anything of my life. I'm too encumbered with my crud for God to do anything with me. I'm too far gone for God to love me, care about me, pursue me, heal me, or anything else. How many of us have said at some point, there's no hope for me? And God said, that's simply not true. That's simply not true. As a matter of fact, to prove the point, let me show you how I brought my very own son through the lineage of people who have incredible baggage. And yet they were somehow able to put that down and be used by me. Matthew shows us, he proves to us that there is nothing too cumbersome for God to take on for us. He's proving to us that God can take the most unlikely people and the worst situations and the greatest amounts of baggage and shame and hurt and damage and turn them around and use them for his most perfect purposes, even the bringing of his one and only son. 
These two wrecks of people, Tamar and Rahab, they're relatives of the incarnate Christ for crying out loud. You talk about turning lemons into lemonade. If God can save a Canaanite prostitute and turn her life around and use her for his purposes, he is certainly ready, willing, and able to take any of us and do the exact same thing. If God can take a relationship fiasco like Tamar's and use her child as a relative of the most high God, the incarnate Christ, he can do the same thing with any of us on any day. And on days when we wonder, is there any hope? Is there any hope? That reality, that truth from God to us ought to inspire incredible hope in us. God can do anything he wants, any way he wants to do it. Because you see, the coming of Jesus, whose name, by the way, means the Lord saves, is all about bringing all of us who are far from God nearer and nearer and nearer to him. It doesn't matter our background. It doesn't matter our heritage. It doesn't matter what sins we've committed in our past. It does not matter the load of baggage that we're carrying. Jesus comes to permanently and indelibly alter our lives and turn our hearts to the Lord. He longs to bring healing to you right here, right now, today. He longs to bring restoration to the broken relationships in your life right here, right now, today. He desires more than anything to set our crooked paths straight right here, right now, and today. He wants to take our mistakes and our waywardness and accomplish his good and perfect things through them. And he proves it. Look, look how I brought my son into the world through a prostitute and a woman who pretends to be a prostitute. God says, I can do anything that I want to do, but it starts with an action step on our part. We've got to move first, frankly, and it starts with being willing to put down those heavy bags that you've been carrying, to actually just set them down at the feet of Jesus, to take him up on his invitation. All you who are weary and heavy laden, put it down. Stop carrying it. Stop swinging by the baggage carousel every morning and just loading it on because that's what you think that you're supposed to do. I have to carry this. I have to carry this. I have to carry this. Just put it down. All the guilt and all the discontent, all the weariness, all the grief, all the doubt, all the loneliness, all the fear, put it down. Leave it behind. Every last bit of it. Just leave it there and focus on What's next? Focus on tomorrow, not on the stuff from yesterday and the past, not on what you've been carrying. Because the truth is, if you want to leave that baggage behind, you have to focus on what you want to be, not what you don't want to be, not on what you don't want to carry. The way that God designed the universe, he hardwired it to include what some people have called the law of attention. The law of attention says whatever it is that you focus on, whatever it is that holds your attention, that is the direction in which you're headed. That's what you're going to become, whatever it is that you're focused on. There's this natural pulling, isn't there, when you focus on something. Whatever has your attention, you tend to move toward it. That obviously means, then, that you don't move toward things that don't have your attention. That means that we have to choose every single day to engage our attention in the direction of God's new things, not in the direction of the things that are not of him, that are in the past. That includes the baggage that God is begging. Will you put it down? The baggage that he is inviting 
Will you just put it down? And see, for a whole bunch of us, our baggage in our past is what defines us. For a whole bunch of us, our identity is completely wrapped up in our luggage and our baggage and our past. And God says, it ought not be that way. I didn't design you to live your life that way. All of that baggage that so many of us carry, that so many of us swung by and picked up even this morning before we came here, is from our past. But we're not our past. All that stuff is over, gone, and done with. And if we want to be free from the stuff that we've been carrying, we've got to focus on the future, the what's ahead, the new thing that God is longing to do in us. Focusing on what you want to be and what you want to become in God's eyes. Not focusing on the stuff that you feel trapped by. Not focusing on the stuff that causes you to be stuck and chained up. Would you take your stuff and set it aside? And I just invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes if you would. And just be real quiet and still before God. and Have a conversation with him. Listen in to him if you would. just ask you to stay in a posture of prayer for these next few moments at the end of the day what God is saying to all of us is see what I can do see what I can do I can bring my son the Messiah the savior of the world I can bring my son into the world through a tainted, stained, and dirty family history. A family history that no one would be or should be proud of. But God says, I can do it. It's who I am. At my very core, it's who I am. And he's saying to you right now, imagine what I can do with you. Imagine what I can do in you. Imagine what I can do through you. Imagine what I can bring through your life. But it all starts with you putting down the baggage you're carrying, the burdens that you're bearing, the stuff that you think has to define you because of something you did last week or last month or 10 years ago. God says, imagine what I can do in you. And so what is it for you? What's the baggage from your past that you just need to put down today once and for all? Just drop it right here and go out those doors unencumbered. What is it? What's it going to take for you to take God at his word? Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, 
and I'll give you rest. I invite and I encourage and I challenge you in this time to grab that promise, to set your stuff down at the feet of Jesus and jump at the chance. Jump at the chance to experience rest for your soul that God intends. God, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you so much for your love for us that caused you to even send your son. We don't want to take his gift for granted whatsoever. And God, we hang much on that promise that you'll give us rest when we give and if we give you our everything. Thank you so much for that. I pray that you would empower us as a community, Lord, to be people who are freed up from our baggage, freed up from our stuff. I pray, God, that all over this room right now, people are dropping stuff at the feet of your son, Jesus Christ putting it down, refusing to be defined by their past. And Lord, I'm sure there's some people sitting in this room right now who are considering a first-time step across the line of faith in you. I ask God that you would be moving and stirring in their hearts right now. And if that describes you sitting in this room, wherever you're sitting, I invite you to say to God, I want a relationship with you. You don't have to say it out loud. Just say it in the silence of your heart. Say, God, I want a relationship with you. I need a relationship with you. God, come into my life and please forgive me. As much God as I can understand, I acknowledge that your son Jesus died on the cross as a payment for my sin. And I repent and I turn. I turn from my sins. I turn from my own path. I Turn from my baggage. And God, I'm walking your way, starting right here, right now. And if there's those of you who's sitting here today who took God up on that invitation and prayed with me just then, that's the biggest deal in your whole life. Nothing matters more and nothing carries more weight. It's such a big deal that I'm going to ask you to Let me know that you made that decision. And this is a real private deal. Nobody's looking around this room but me. If you prayed with me just then, would you be so bold as to slip your hand up and make eye contact with me and just say, yeah, yeah, right here, front, right here, over here. Yep, way to go. Just slip your hand up and right there. I see you. Just make sure I catch your eye right here up front. And you right over there, sir. Way to go. Right now, God, and right there as well. Way to go. Right now, God is changing you and he's making you brand new. You just make sure I catch your eye, please. I don't want to miss anybody. God, thank you for all those just said yes to you who stepped across the line of faith into relationship with you God I pray that that 
embryonic faith would be quickened in their souls. That folks would get up next to them and encourage them in this newfound faith in you, God. That the freedom that comes from depositing baggage at your feet, that they would sense it as they get up and leave this room today, God. That they would walk in a new lightness of being, Father, because of what you have done in them. And God, would you help all of us, please, as a community called Journey Church, be people who take you up on your invitation for the soul rest that you offer us. That we wouldn't be people who lug all of that stuff around, but that we would leave it with you. The one who came to bear it. The one who came to bear our sin. The one who came to bring us home, God, to you. Pray this in Jesus' holy name. And everyone said...